There was only one, and that God was Jesus. In fact, here's how I would summarize the oneness of God. God is one. Jesus is that one God. If you want to best understand the relationship between Christ and God, next time you have a glass of water, put some ice in it. And if you don't understand that, then put it on the stove and boil it. And when it turns to steam, how can one element be three things at the same time and still be one? It happens in your kitchen every day. Nowhere in the Bible is there first person, second person, third person of the Godhead. There is one God. What happens when there's a group that claims to be Christian but promotes a different gospel? They have a gospel mixed with error or even heresy. I mean, can someone still be a Christian if they deny the virgin birth? Can they be considered a Christian if they deny the divinity and the sonship of Jesus? What about if they deny the sinless life of Christ or even the resurrection of Jesus? I think most Christians would agree that you can't deny the fundamentals of the faith and yet still be considered a Christian. So what about the Trinity? Can someone still be considered a Christian and deny the Trinity? I'm not talking about someone who struggles to comprehend the Trinity. I'm talking about someone who outright denies the Trinity. Can that person still be called a brother or sister in Christ? Well, join us today as we take this time to stop and think about it. Hello? Hello, anybody home? I'm Think McFly. Think. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. What were you thinking? I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Didn't say anything now. Just think about it. You're listening to Stop and Think About It, a podcast for the Christian thinker. In a day when sound biblical preaching has been replaced by man-centered entertainment, and the church has become increasingly anti-intellectual, this podcast will encourage believers to think biblically and theologically. So please join me as we get ready to stop and think about it. Welcome, friends and foes, saints and sinners, to the premier launch of Stop and Think About It, a podcast for the Christian thinker. I'm your host, Phil Sessa, and please allow me to introduce you to the Stop and Think About It crew. We have Glenn from Jamaica, also known as the West Indian Wordsmith. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. We also have Nick from the Bronx, a.k.a. the Puerto Rican Puritan. You, you. And then we have Steve from Brooklyn, also known as the Brooklyn Berean. Hello, everybody. Well, I want to share with you our purpose. The purpose of this podcast is to help equip Christians to think biblically and theologically about the faith. Today's episode is entitled Sibelius, the Great Pretender. You see, for the first 400 years of Christianity, believers thought deeply about theology. And one of the most pressing questions of the day was regarding the person of Jesus Christ. Was he God, man, or both? That single question, who is Jesus, caused much confusion. And unfortunately, here we are 2,000 years later, and the confusion still continues. Steve, what do Oneness Pentecostals actually believe? Aren't they just another Christian denomination? Well, unfortunately, that's what a lot of Christians think, Phil. Oneness Pentecostals try very hard to pass themselves off as just another Christian denomination. But in all reality, they are a false religion. For instance, they believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
They believe in the virgin birth and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that orthodox? Well, yes. So on paper, they seem to be legit. But when you begin to probe a little deeper, you quickly find out that they're anything but Christian. For instance, they believe that one must be baptized in Jesus' name only and speak in tongues in order to be saved. They also deny the deity of the Son, the eternal existence of the Son, and the Trinity. So they might use the same terminology as we do, but their meaning, as you can tell, is quite different. Heresy. (laughs) So, Apologetics 101, define your terms. So tell us more about what they actually believe. Well, in order to do that, we have to go back, way back, 2,000 years ago back to the second century, to a heresy called monarchianism. And we're going to look at some of the main proponents of this heresy. The first one we have is Praxius, who wanted to preserve the unity of the Godhead, but he went too far. And instead, he began teaching modalism, which asserts that there is one God who appears in different modes. So he taught... There was no distinctions between the Father and the Son, and that Jesus was actually the Father who became incarnate and suffered on the cross. This is known as an ancient heresy called Patra Passionism, which means the Father suffered. His greatest opponent, Tertullian, an early church father, he wrote against him in a famous treatise entitled Against Praxius. Tertullian showed how absurd the concept of modalism was when he wrote this, quote, A father must need have a son in order to be a father. So likewise, a son, to be a son, must have a father. It is, however, one thing to have and another thing to be. For instance, in order to be a husband, I must have a wife. I can never myself be my own wife. In like manner, in order to be a father, I have a son. For I can never be a son to myself. And in order to be a son, I have a father. It being impossible for me to ever be my own father, unquote. It sounds like oneness Pentecostals are in a divine Halloween party. <laughs> I really like Tertullian's illustration to debunk this because it shows oneness theology to be both unbiblical and completely illogical. Absolutely. Tertullian refuted modalism by taking its teaching to its logical conclusions. We should all practice this kind of logic when examining various theological and doctrinal positions. If this is true, then what? Where does it lead? That's a good practice. Very good. And next we have Sibelius. He was a third century theologian who took an earlier heresy of Monarchianism and modified it. He tweaked it a little. He began to teach that the Godhead consisted of only one person, who expressed himself in three different modes. Basically, he was wearing three different masks. He wore the mask of the Father in creation, the mask of the Son in redemption, and the mask of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. Where Orthodox Christianity speaks of one substance and three persons, you've heard that, right? Yes. Sabellianism speaks of one substance and three modes. This teaching is what is known today as Sabellianism or modalism. So God has different modes or masks. Question. Bible verse, Bible verse, Bible verse. Well, there aren't any. I thought Satan is the one that masquerades himself as an angel of light. Second Corinthians 11.4. And true. And that's why modalism is so evil, Phil, because it makes God out to be the great pretender. The father is only pretending 
to be the son, when in reality, he is just the father wearing a different mask. So Praxis and Sibelius were condemned as heretics, and rightly so. And in all fairness, Phil, they didn't start out to become heretics. They were actually concerned about defending the proper view of God and the full deity of Christ, but they went too far. As Glenn often says, some people run so hard away from one heresy, but they run too far to the other side and fall into the ditch of yet another heresy. True. And unfortunately, it didn't stop there, Phil. This ugly heresy would rear its head throughout history. It happened in 375 under Basil, who refuted it, and then during the Reformation under a man named Michael Servetus, who was also deemed a heretic. In fact, every time this heresy arose throughout history, it was rightly condemned by Trinitarian Christians. And in 1906, following the Azusa Street Revival, the Assemblies of God, to their credit, booted out over 160 oneness believers from their fellowship. So the oneness group took their theological bat and ball and left starting their own quote-unquote churches, leading today what is known as the UPC, United Pentecostal Churches. So we're calling this series Ancient Heresies in Modern Clothes. So who are some of the modern-day Pentecostals and modalists that we ought to be aware of? Well, there are several. We have the famous T.D. Jakes. Everybody's heard of him. Yes, we have Tommy Tenney. The God chaser, but unfortunately, I think he's chasing the wrong God. Yeah. And then there's a guy named Noel Jones, who's a, also a TV personality. He's one of the pastors on the Preachers of LA, I think it is. I don't think we should really call them preachers. Exactly. Uh, but the most problematic area that I see, Phil, is in the gospel music industry. One is Pentecostals love music, and many of them are extremely talented. But many are embraced by Trinitarian believers and even sing at their churches. So we have men like Phillips, Craig, and Dean. Three guys in one band. No, it's just one guy wearing three different masks. <laughs> wow. That's a new spiritual gift. <laughs> yes. And then we have uh, Wayne and Elizabeth Goodine, who write a lot of music for uh, Charismatics. And then there's a new player in town. His name is Torin Wells. Wells is also a one is Pentecostal pastor, but last year he toured with Chris Tomlin. Tomlin should have checked his resume. He should have. So people who deny the Trinity are also ministering in Trinitarian churches? Unfortunately, they are, Phil. It's amazing that people are more interested in having good-sounding music rather than God-glorifying theology in their music. John 4.24, worship God in spirit and in truth. Amen. I know that one is Pentecostals believe the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit can't actually be in the same room at the same time. But is there anywhere in Scripture that debunks that and that we actually see the full Trinity together at the same time? Well, yes, absolutely. At the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Read it for us. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold... The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Baptize Jesus' Son, the dove, Holy Spirit, the voice, the Father. And when the voice came from heaven, Jesus' lips never moved. No, they didn't. Because Jesus didn't say anything. In the words of Odibakum, that dog won't hunt. <laughs> and also look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. Consequently, 
When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired. Listen. But a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. So, if the Son is just a father wearing a different mask, when he came into the world, he should have said, A body I've prepared for myself. True. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, a body you have prepared for me. So who is Christ speaking to here, Phil? Himself or the Father? I mean, it seems pretty plain to me. So isn't Jesus just wearing a different mask? Absolutely not. More about one is Pentecostalism coming up next on Stop and Think About It. Thank you for listening to Stop and Think About It. If you would like to contact us, please email us at stopandthinkcrew at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at www.stopandthinkpodcast.com. Now, one of the things that we must realize is that many people deny the Trinity because the word Trinity is not in the Bible. But then again, the word Bible is actually not in the Bible, is it? And secondly, because they can't image it. Let me ask you guys real quick. What images have people tried to use? I've heard I'm a father, but I'm also a son and I'm also a husband, but I'm also a man all at once. All right, Glenn, have you heard any? No, I think the introduction kind of explains this idea of water and the different phases of water. But we, can, we all can see that how that's silly. It's very silly. Right now, if I say, can you visualize the Trinity? I would ask another question. Can you image God? Can you visualize God? Can you say, poof, here is God. When somebody says, well, show me God. I can't poof, you know, make like a cloud appear and say, here is God in the James Earl Jones voice. And not only can we not image God, but you're forbidden from doing it by the commandments. Just because we can't image God, does that mean God doesn't exist? You see, you can't image immaterial things. You you can't image the soul. You can't image the conscience. You can't image your mama's love for you, can you? You can't <laughs> image thoughts. You can't image the will. And so there's tons of things you can't image, but just because you can't visualize what they look like, that doesn't render them to be false. And now here's the thing. Just because we can't image the Trinity, that does not make the Trinity false. And here are some of the illustrations that maybe you have heard out there as well. The image used by the famous St. Patrick in Ireland or Ireland. I don't have a good Irish accent. Steve, you got an Irish accent? No, I'm half Irish, half half Italian. So I'm from Brooklyn. So you get the Brooklyn accent. Oh, okay. He's half, he's half Irish, zero Irish uh, accent, but that's okay. Nick, any Puerto Rican Irish accent there for you? Nah. Nothing at all. Nah. All right. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so Patrick was said to have used a three-leaf clover. So he plucks a clover off the ground and said, this is like the Trinity. There's three leaves and it's on one clover. So the three-leaf clover represents the Trinity. No good. No, because you have one-third God the Father, one-third God the Son, one-third the Holy Spirit. So they're all partially part of one but they're not one in and of themselves so in brooklyn they would say you slice up the pizza in the three parts exactly right and everybody gets a piece although i think steve's going to take half the pie but that's all right now glenn mentioned water 
So we have ice, water, and steam. And Jake's, in our opening, T.D. Jake's, used this illustration to show what he believes theologically. But the problem is, is that water becomes ice, and water can become steam. Jesus never became the Son, and the Son never became the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit never became the Father. He also likened God to an element in, in the beginning of the intro. You know, using that illustration, he's likening God to an element, not a being. Right. He's likening to God to something God has made, something created. Yeah, and I think Steve made a good point in the beginning about how even in the very beginning, Sibelius is transforming it. And one of the issues they first had was this idea of it, him changing from one to the other. And now, and then they switch it to any more sophisticated saying it's simultaneous. So how can you be simultaneously water, ice, and steam? You can't. And you notice how T.D. Jakes doesn't address that. He kind of ignores that element. Because he said, how can three be the same thing and yet be different? But they're not the same. When ice is ice, it's no longer water, it's ice. When water is steam, is it water or is it steam? So when you have steam, you don't have water. So when you have the father, do you have the son? Definitely not. Definitely not. And so one thing transforming into another thing, that is not the biblical view of God. Steve mentioned before, he spoke about the baptism of Christ. So one is Pentecostal would say, well, all the modes of God never show up at the party at the same time, but they do. They actually do show up at the same party at the same time. It's not that Jesus shows up, he leaves the room, and then the Father comes in with a different mask, he zips out of the room, and the Holy Spirit comes in in yet another mode. Because we do see, see them showing up at the party at the same time. And again, where did they show up at the exact same time, Steve? Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism. They were all there at the same time. When you heard the voice of heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, would the one as Pentecostal say Jesus said that? They would. But yet Jesus' lips never moved. So how did Jesus say it and his lips never moved? Because the voice came from heaven. It didn't say the voice came from the earth. It didn't come from the lips of Christ himself. It came from the Father. And John 17, where did Jesus look when he prayed? There you go. He looked to heavens. He looked at the heavens. And I, and I would argue that, you know, when you try to take, make explanation of the Bible outside of the Bible, you get yourself into all these issues. Why not stick to the scriptures? Why not go with what the Bible is saying? And that's a perfect example of what we mean by one God. Very true. Now, here's another one. We have the egg. Some people say, oh, God is like an egg. He's a shell, yolk, and the white. But the problem is that when liquid water and ice uh, come together, they switch from liquid to solid, and then it boils and switches to vapor. But God doesn't switch, so he cannot be a shell because the shell is not the yolk, and the yolk is not the white. They are different. They are different parts. Once again, the illustration absolutely fails. We have to accept God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. I'm not allowed to have my own view of who God is. Very true. God has revealed himself as three persons, yet he's one God. And so it's idolatry when I make up my own view. So the Jesus that they're singing about is not the same Jesus that we in this room worship. It's a different Jesus. It's a different God because he's not the God of Scripture. And so you, you scratch your head and you wonder, why are these pastors inviting men who deny the Trinity to stand before their people and minister and sing songs on a Sunday when we're worshiping Jesus? 
Yeah, I mean, would you say that there is a real question that a new believer would have is, well, how can they be one God in three persons? I mean, I think this is what we really got to get to the heart to. Maybe some of these pastors are struggling with the same question. True. Right. And and to have a question about it or to try to learn about it and get some kind of understanding, that that's kind of a different mindset than I don't believe this. And many times realize that when you're in a denomination, your theology is going to be bent a certain way uh, according to what you're hearing from the pulpit. And so I liked what Greg Kokel said. He said, the Trinity, a solution, not a problem. He actually had a podcast. And I thought that the, the title was so fitting. The Trinity, a solution, not a problem. Because many people think of it as a problem because, once again, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. But there's a lot of words that we use to preach and teach that are also not in the Bible. Right. Is the hypostatic union is that term that Jesus fully God, fully man is that term in the Bible? No, but the concept is in there. The word Bible is not in the Bible, but we don't cease from using that phrase. So let's look at what the Trinity is not and then look at what the Trinity is. Here's where people get tripped up. Right, Nick? The word persons. True story. Because you're a person. I'm a person. Glenroy is a person. We're not sure about That's Steve. debatable. <laughs> That's debatable. <laughs> Ask my wife. Ask your wife. <laughs> All right. Uh, no, he's a person from Brooklyn. So they're they're people from Brooklyn. They're people too. <laughs> but people. <laughs> but many people do. They get tripped up with the word person, and they construe it to mean a human person. One is typically asked, "How could there be three persons when the Old Testament says there's one person?" That's a fair question. Or, why do you say the Son is the second person? Again, that's a fair question. It's one thing to question things versus denying things. But there has to be an honest questioner. You see, sometimes when people ask a question, they don't want a true biblical answer. They're just trying to play uh, stump the the Christian. And so, here is the first term we got to deal with, the word being. What does the word being actually mean? Well, the word being is the quality or essence that makes something what it is. It's a unification of attributes, right? So you're a being, I'm a being. Now the word person, the word person means the quality or essence that makes someone who he is or she is with intellect, emotions, and a will. So let me illustrate that. A worm is one being. But how many persons is a worm? Zero. Zero persons, exactly. I am a being. I'm a human person consisting of one person. I can't be more than one persons. But now God is not a human being. He's a divine being, which makes him different than a human being. And so a divine being here, the Trinity, consists of three persons, Maybe this will help you. There is one being, one what, and three persons, three who's. It's not an apples to apples comparison when using the word persons and beings contrasted with the human and the divine. I hope that's sunk in. I'm a person. I'm one being. God is a being, yet three persons. If I compare me to God, I'm not comparing apples to apples. It's not a one-to-one So you're saying you're not thrice holy? I'm not thrice holy. You're not omnipotent, omniscient? Not even close. No. (laughs) Now, 
when ascribing that God is one, according to Deuteronomy chapter six, many people that don't do proper hermeneutics, they just say one means single. But how do we know that? How do we know that one always means single? Because in the passage, when it says the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, the word does not actually mean singleness, but it means unity. It's the same word used in Genesis chapter two, verse 24, where the husband and wife were said to be one flesh. Thus, while this verse was intended as a clear and concise statement of monotheism, it does not exclude the concept of the Trinity. So when one is Pentecostals come along and use Deuteronomy 6, 4, are they refuting the Trinity? No, no, definitely not. But why do they say that that verse refutes the Trinity? What are they doing with their interpretation? Isogeton. Say that again, Nick. Isogeton. What does isogeton mean? They're imposing their view on the text. There you go. So they're bringing their own ideas to the text. So exegesis means to to draw out of, picture a well, you put throw the bucket down, you draw out what's inside of the well, which will be water. Maybe a couple of bugs, but you could strain those out. But when you eisegete something, what do you do? It's kind of like you fill the bucket up with something other than water. You put your own substances in there. You're not drawing out from the well what's in there. And we need to draw out of the well of Scripture what God has put in there. We cannot put our own mixture of drinks in there. We must draw out the pure milk of the Word, the living water. It's all in there. It's like, what is that, Prego? No, please don't insult me. Prego. If you're Italian and you use Prego, you're not Italian. (laughs) Anyway, so David Helm makes a good analogy about, um, he calls it the inebriated preacher. So he has a picture of a drunk leaning against a lamppost. And he says, this drunk is like the inebriated preacher. A preacher uses the Bible like a drunk uses a lamppost. He leans on it for support, not illumination. So a preacher comes with an idea, then goes to the Bible to look for support for what he wants to say. That's eisegesis. He's going to the Bible to take out of it what he already has in his mind, what he wants to say. Where a faithful preacher comes to the Bible and stands under it and is illuminated by what the Bible says, and then he preaches God's message, not his own. Right. So the Bible can't mean something different to us than it meant to the first century Christians. We can't jam our own ideas into the text and say, this is what it means to me. Guess what? No one cares what it means to you. And because people are doing that, we have one as Pentecostals today. Absolutely. So, so, so you would say the one does not mean one, but it means unity. And we have to kind of let the scripture speak to us. It's kind of what you're saying. Yes. We have to let the scripture speak. I like what I forgot who said it. You guys probably know only a diamond can cut a diamond and only scripture can interpret scripture. So basically what we're, we're going on is, is a paradox rather than a, a real issue. You know, God being divine and different from us is represented in this triune way while we want him to be like us and just be one, one, one. Absolutely. It kind of sounds like uh, Genesis. You can be like God all over again. I mean, it's really steeped in sin in all reality. But yeah, like what like Glenn said. It's really about unity, not about singleness. And what we see is that Jesus existed in eternity past. That's a major problem for oneness Pentecostals. Yeah, brother, just going back to the text, Paul 
takes the Shema and he applies to it New Testament revelation. In uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, he repeats the Shema, yet for there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So he gives, you know, the, the new revelation of what the Shema really means, and he also gives the Father and the Son divine attributes. They have the same attributes, from whom are all things, and they exist for him, and by whom are all things in Christ, and we exist through him. So for them to use the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4, they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot because where, when it's brought back out by Paul himself in, in 1 Corinthians, you know, it's really proving the triunity of God. And, and, and would you also argue that he's saying Jesus is Lord, which is equaling him to God? Right, exactly. You see, and this is a key point. Uh, an apologetic point always make people define their terms so when you say jesus and the mormon says jesus and the muslim says jesus and here in this case the one is pentecostal said jesus well what jesus are you talking about the one that died on the cross for me even even that could be not enough because they'll all say that jesus died on the cross yeah. that came in the flesh that is separate from the father i can keep going <laughs> <laughs> see you when you say separate from the father you just dice it up there yeah. so when people come along and that's and the say, thing glenn is now defining his terms there you go he's giving more definition to jesus jesus doesn't save jesus the real jesus saves the jesus of the bible because jesus even said other christs will come Right. So just saying Jesus is there's some Spanish guy down the street. His name is Jesus. Uh, Jesus. He's not going to save me. He owns the uh, he, he owns the gas station down the street. I was going to say bodega, but whatever. <laughs> the bodega, too. He owns both of them. There ain't no bodegas in Trosneck, though. <laughs> <laughs> there could be. But, but I think this idea that God existed, Jesus existed with God before is going to kind of destroy a lot of what they're saying, isn't it? Can I read a quote from David? Uh, Bernard, who is the uh, top dog, one is Pentecostal theologian, regarding the uh, pre-incarnate Son of Christ. This is what he said. Read the bark out loud. Yeah. The word or logos can mean the plan, thought, or mind of God. The incarnation was a predetermined plan, an absolute certain future event, and therefore it had a reality attached to it that no human thought could ever have. The word can also mean the plan or thought of God as expressed in the flesh, that is, in the Son. What is the difference, therefore, between the two terms, word and the Son? The word had a preexistence, and the word was God the Father. So we can use this term without reference to humanity. However, the Son always refers to the Incarnation, and we cannot speak of the Son in the same absence of the human element, except as a foreordained plan in the mind of God. Listen to that. He said, we can speak of the Son as a foreordained plan in the mind of God. The Son did not have a preexistence before the conception in the womb of Mary. The Son of God preexisted in thought, but not in substance. The Bible calls this foreordained revelation the Word. Well, wow, that leads us right into this true aspect of things. You see, Jesus did exist in eternity past. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. Where have we heard the words in the beginning? We've heard it. Genesis. Genesis. In we heard beginning. it in the beginning. 
and the word was with God and the word was God. Is that not clear enough for you? But wait, there's more. John continues. He, this is all speaking about Jesus, was in the beginning with God. As a thought? Not as a thought. (laughs) All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So if Jesus was there in the beginning and he created all of creation, he couldn't have been like a thought. He was actually a person at creation that created all things. And look at what it says in John chapter one and verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son or begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. You see, the eternal one became flesh. He put on humanity without ever ceasing to be the second person of the Trinity of God. This is absolutely an amazing thing. And this is something that the oneness believer denies. It's an amazing thing to, to, to ignore such clear scripture. Absolutely. Absolutely. And see, there was a meeting or I guess an event that they had called the elephant room where TD Jakes was invited to basically affirm the Trinity and who were the other people there? Was it James McDonald? James McDonald, uh, Mark Driscoll, a few others. They gave him a pass on it because he's good. I mean, listen, he's a very charismatic speaker. Your ears kind of want to listen to him. He's got that booming, thundering voice. He's like a charismatic Vodibachum, except he doesn't have the theology of Vodibachum, unfortunately. They can be very shady, one of Pentecostals, in their explanation of theology and their doctrine. If you go on Phillips, Craig, and Dean, all three of them are oneist Pentecostal pastors. They're not just singers, but they're actually pastors of churches. And they're three people in one band? Exactly, but they're 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 not, you know, the Trinity. <laughs> they're oneness. They're all there's just Phillips, Craig, and Dean. It's one guy. So if you look at their uh, statements of faith, uh Dan Dean in his church Heartland, I believe it is, his statement of faith is just the Apostles' Creed. That's it. So the Apostles' Creed, which is a very good creed, it's not strong enough to weed out heretics because one is Pentecostals can agree with everything that the Apostles' Creed says. But when you get to the Athanasius' Creed, all bets are off. What is the Athanasian Creed? The Athanasian Creed is a creed that defines clearly what the Trinity is. And Nick is going to talk about that in a minute. Here's the thing, right? You want to like weed out the heretics, you, you bring them to the creeds. Because if you use the Apostles' Creed... That's not going to weed out a one as Pentecostal. They can agree with those things. Exactly. Right? You're not you're not peeling the onion down far enough. You're just kind of peeling a layer off. And if you were speaking to a one as Pentecostal, you might be thinking that you're speaking about the same Jesus and you're speaking on the same terms, but you're really not. So you got to peel it down further. So Nick, pull up the Athanasian Creed for us there. Whosoever will be saved. Before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith, which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, 
such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. Vody Bakum had a, a similar situation. He was supposed to show up to that, and uh, he actually ended up not going. And in talking about it with James White, James White, he, he said this, he should have presented the Athanasian Creed and made T.D. Jakes deal with it. I think that's the issue, too. We are, we are too busy trying to defend uh, the Trinity, but we're not putting the ball in their court and making them, you know, learn how to dribble. We're not questioning them. We're too much on the defensive trying to, you know, defend us. So would you say that we need to be on the offensive instead of always backpedaling and being on the defensive? Yeah, I think we need to start asking the questions. And, and, and even like um, you were showing me not too long ago, you know, almost backing them into a corner. You, with your questions, caused them to put themselves in their own corner. Yeah, picture painting yourself into a corner that you can't get out of. And we need to define the terms on the authority of God's word, not on what they think. And when we force them to do that, we get clarity. So a clear definition of what the Trinity is and what is required of a person to believe in the God of Scripture is clearly defined in the Athanasian Creed. So just imagine if they would have like used uh, the Athanasian Creed to kind of pinch T.D. Jakes. What would have happened? I think the elephant in the room would have went. However, I don't think that sounded like anything like an elephant. Maybe a Bronx elephant. (laughs) Maybe a Bronx elephant. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, really, if you would have squeezed Jake's with the Athanasian Creed, I mean, I think he, you know, they could have just dropped the mic from there because he would not be able to affirm that, right? He would have had to somehow do his little TD Jake's dance around it. And listen, we're not just here to pick on TD Jake's. We're really focusing on. The oneness theology as a whole. He just happens to be like, a, you know, a big figurehead of it, along with Phillips, Craig and Dean and Tommy Tenney and, and others. And listen to this. They're focusing actually on a different Jesus Christ. They're using the same book that we're using. They're using the same verses we're using, but they're interpreting it wrongly. You see, the essence and substance of the son, the second person of the Trinity, For the first three to four hundred years of Christianity, this was the problem that people had. And guess what? Nothing has really changed. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. People still have a problem with who Jesus is. He came a split time in half from A.D. to B.C. People got a problem with him. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 6, Jesus forgave sin. Did he not? Listen to what Isaiah chapter 6 says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting up upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, who was the one seated on the throne? Well, the one as Pentecostal would say, Jesus. Jesus is seated on the throne, right? Now, we see that in John chapter 12, verse 41, actually we'll start back in verse 37. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. 
Now, in Isaiah, the one is Pentecostal would say that they're talking about the Father. But listen to what said is in verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And here is a verse that like I didn't even know existed in the Bible until like five or six years ago. I mean, I, I mean, it was there. But I mean, Edward uh, Delcor, who wrote an incredible book called A Definitive Look at Oneness Theology, highly recommended whether you have a oneness friend, whether you are a oneness or whether you just want to understand what they believe and see what they believe, why they believe it. I highly and I couldn't more highly recommend this book. Uh, He's a great brother, but he highlighted Hebrews chapter one and verse eight. Let me just read Hebrews chapter one and verse eight for us. It says, but of the son, he says, now this is the father talking about the son. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So if the son is not God, how can the father call him God? I mean, Glenn, isn't that a problem? I think that's a really big problem. Why, why is that a huge problem? In saying that Jesus is the father or Jesus is not is in a different mode, it, it's, it's complicated because God is saying, no, you are God. It's you, a separate being, is God, separate, not in separate substance, but separate in the fact of your role, is God. He's, he's ascribing to him authority that they're saying Jesus doesn't have. Very true. So we read that the son, not the father, is directly addressed as in the Greek, hotheos, the God. This is very difficult to answer for oneness Pentecostals who hold to oneness theology. But of the son, he, the father, says, your throne, O God, again, hotheos, the God, is forever and ever. How can God directly address the son as the God? It's strange because the Old Testament talks about how God is doesn't want to share his glory with another. You know, Woo! say that again. <laughs> that God in the Old Testament says that he does not want to share his glory with another. No glory sharing. So one is theology asserts that only the father, not the son is God. So when we speak about Jesus with the oneness person, realize we're not dicing Jesus up, if you will, in the same way. You, you really you can't dice him. So they're they're saying that Jesus in his humanity is the son in his divinity is the Holy Spirit and the father. So if you would ask a one as Pentecostal, do you believe Jesus is is divine and human? They would say yes. Would they not? Yes. They would say yes. But, but they don't mean the same thing. What do they mean? What do they mean? Right. They mean that Jesus is human as the son and divine and as the Father, and as the Holy Spirit. And again, the Trinity is a solution, not a problem. Because they assert that God is unipersonal. He exists as one person. But only from a Trinitarian context can one member of the Trinity address another member of the Trinity as the God, Hotheos. So here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, bottom line, God is addressing God. Amen. Now, Nick, before we go to you, let me just squirt over to Steve for a second, because Steve highlights this verse, which I thought was absolutely beautiful in Revelation chapter five and verse six. Steve, who's sitting on the throne? So let me let me give some context. So I have a friend who I haven't seen in like years. 
And we hooked up on Facebook, I don't know, six years ago. And I found out he's a one is Pentecostal. So we had about a five-hour conversation on the phone. And every verse I gave him, he was, you know, coming back with his answers. And so I read this verse to him. When I read it, he got angry and said, I don't know. And pretty much the conversation was over. He got really mad. And here's the verse I read. I just asked him a simple question. I said, when we get to heaven, how many persons are we going to see in the Godhead? He said, one. I said, so there's only one throne and there's going to be one God and we're not going to see a son, a father, and the Holy Spirit. He said, absolutely not. I said, okay, can you answer this question for me then? In Revelation chapter 5, listen to this, verse 6, 5 and 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain. Now, everyone knows who this is, correct? This is Jesus, the, the slain lamb is Christ. Right? With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent all sent out into all the world. And listen, and he, the lamb, the son, Jesus, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him, the father God sitting on a throne who was seated on the throne. Jesus, the son, walked up to the throne, reached out and took the scroll from the hand of the father. That's wow. a lot of manifestations going on. Exactly. My friend got angry. He couldn't answer it. And pretty much the conversation was over. Here's a clear scripture that shows Jesus actually reaching out and have an interaction with the Father. And one is Pentecostals cannot answer this question. And see, that's really being dishonest. Very. Right. Because you're asking a question. I mean, listen, we shouldn't get offended if somebody says, well, listen, I don't see the Trinity in scripture. The word Trinity is not in the scripture. So therefore, it's false. Can you explain to me why you believe in the Trinity? I mean, we shouldn't be offended by that question. In all reality, if what we believe is true, then we can articulate it. We don't run away from it and get angry at the person. Listen, in Islam, they hold that Jesus is just a prophet. I shouldn't get angry at them. Realize that people are blind. I mean, if you saw a blind man tripping down the street, could you get angry because he's tripping down the street? Absolutely not. No. So, I mean, we can't get angry at people who are blind and we shouldn't be offended when people question what we believe. What we should do is hear them out, hear their reasoning, their rationale, their questioning, and then dialogue with them like human beings should do. Not just get angry and try to bite their head off. But he kind of tried to bite your head off, right? Actually, he got very angry and pretty much the conversation was over. He tried to bite into and a meatball. He picked up his toys and he went home. <laughs> That's just being a child. That's not being an adult. I mean, come on. Let's grow up a little bit. Let's have meaningful dialogue about these things. Well, you know, today they say the only heresy is saying that there is heresy. Shailin. 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 Now, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 41 to 45, listen to this. We see that David is speaking here or being quoted from. It says, now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they answered, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And listen to this. And no one was able to answer him a word, 
nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. He put them to silence because who is the Lord saying to my Lord? Well, it's it's Christ talking to the Father. More about Oneness Pentecostalism coming up next. I'll stop and think about it. This podcast is listener supported by generous people like you. You can give a tax-deductible donation at our affiliate ministry at www.soulfishyministries.org and click on our donate link to give securely through PayPal. Thank you for listening to Stop and Think About It. Nick, you got that Daniel chapter 7 for us. If you look at Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 9 to 14, it says, I'm using uh, Nick's Authorized Standard Bible. Oh, boy. uh, (laughs) NASB. I kept looking until the thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. His wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing, and coming out from before him, thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him, the court sat and the books were open. Let's skip down a little bit up to verse 13. It says, I kept looking in the new in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days. Now we got a distinction here. We got one like the son of man. And we know that Jesus constantly called himself and referred to himself as the son of man. And we got the ancient of days, which we all know who that is. That is the father. And was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, this was to the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the people, nations, and men of every language might serve him. So now, the Ancient of Days gives the Son of Man people, and he commands the people to worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So we have a distinction here between the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days gives him a kingdom and a people to worship him. Now, why would God the Father give somebody else, put somebody else on a pedestal for them to worship? And Dalko also points out, referring to verse 9, to notice that the thrones is plural, until thrones were set up. So who is God the Father, the Ancient of Days, he just is going to share the throne with? if not the son of man, whom he gave the kingdom to. So this is a plurality of the Godhead. Plurality. (laughs) True. And, you know, and they're distinct from one another. These are the two persons in one nature. And just because the Holy Spirit's not mentioned there, does that mean the Holy Spirit's not part of the persons? Nope. All right. Now, here's another huge problem. How does this really... Uh, skew biblical doctrine because when you have the oneness of God as the oneness Pentecostals define uh, Christ as being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this throws biblical theology. So, Glenn, talk to me over here. What does this do for biblical doctrine? Well, this is my favorite part of this podcast. So, of course it is. We're going into creeds. We're going into theological. We're going into the, you know, parsing the words. And I, and I know for a lot of people, including myself, it's, well, how does it practically affect me? How does this affect my daily walk? What's the big deal? Okay, so some people believe he's one. Some people believe he's three persons. But the way I look at it is, it, 
you know, Adalcor, the book that you, you mentioned before, did a, did a great job of kind of isolating what the problems are. One of them is it's, it's a, attacking Jesus's role as a mediator. It's attacking Jesus's role as a divine intercessor. It's the, attacking Jesus's role as a substitutionary atonement. So let's focus on the mediator part of it, right? And that's something that's very important to us as a believer. When we pray, in Jesus' name, we're, we're, we're appealing to Jesus to speak to us on behalf of the Father, the Father with whom says he does not speak with people who are sinful. Isaiah chapter 1 is talking about he doesn't listen to those whose hands are filled with blood. Well, who is the one that stands in our place who we are being, um, Jesus sees when he sees us? He sees Jesus. And First Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So when you start attacking who Jesus is, when you start parsing out whether he's the Father, whether he's not the Father, whether he's one with the Father, whether the Holy Spirit is not a part of it, you're basically taking away that one advocate that we have, the one person going before God and saying, no, leave Glenn, Nick, Phil, and any other believer alone because he's with me. He's our mediator. That's something that's destroyed when we don't have a clear view of who he is. Another thing is that Jesus is a divine intercessor, right? He's mediator. He's also intercessing. Um, Romans 8, um, chapter 8, verse 34 says, And who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yes, that is risen again, who is even on the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Well, who is interceding? If he's the same personage is the same being who's wearing different modes and different hats and it's just one being who's playing like this cosmic joke on us who is interceding for us who is going before god as an advocate for us right this is a practical situation what who are we praying to right picture how that would work out in a courtroom Right. That would be a major problem. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, you always make fun of me as a Jamaican who has multiple jobs. And, you know, I'll be the lawyer, the judge, the prosecutor, all in one thing. And there's no one for us to appeal to. Right. And the beauty of Christian religion is that we have someone who will advocate for us, who's going to speak for us and who's going to take the punishment for us. That goes to the next thing. It denies Jesus as a substitutionary atonement. Well, how can he die on the cross for us if he really wasn't there? He really isn't flesh. He really isn't a man, right? Um, I would like, I would turn to Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. And it says, and he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed. This is Jesus. Jesus, the man, Jesus, the Godhead saying, Oh, my father. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Right? Verse 42, he says, And he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, your will be done. Well, first of all, there's a lot of things happening here. One, he's dreading. He's looking towards a future where he's going to be paying for our sins. Well, is this true? Is he faking it? Because if he's the father, he's not going to really face any punishment, correct? But he is fearful. He is not fearful, but he is dreading this, 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 this condemnation he's going to face on the cross for on our behalf. He's going to face our sins. He's going to be facing it on the cross. So wh- and who is he speaking to? Who is he appealing to if he's speaking to himself? There's a lot of problems that happen here. But primarily, Jesus had to be, had to dwell amongst us as flesh. So, Glenn, is it safe to say that if we lose the Trinity, we lose the gospel? <laughs> 
We lose the gospel. We lose the very thing that we believe in. Because Jesus came to make propitiation for sins. Propitiation means he appeased the wrath of God in our place. So who did he appease it to? Exactly. exactly. Himself? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and when we say that we're covered by Jesus, when we say that Jesus is sinless life, well, did he live a sinless life? He, did, he wasn't even here in the way that they're saying it. He didn't really, um, in Hebrews talks about how he was faced with temptations and yet he was able to, he didn't do that, right? He was a God. He was a father. No, it, it's it, Jesus' very life, the way he lived it out, had to be manifested in this way where he came in, in the flesh and was facing hunger. And try, when he was praying all the time, he said he went off to pray. Was he talking to himself? No, it was him exampling for us how we should be today. Hey, Glenn, don't you think also, uh, like it speaks about, I think in Hebrews, you know, it takes away Christ being able to sympathize Amen. with us. Amen. You yeah. Know? Yeah, he's not. He's not able to sympathize with us. He's God the Father masquerading and talking to himself. I, I think at the heart of it is, is just creating this caricature of God as being malicious and, 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 and kind of as a, con- a cosmic joke. It kind of takes the seriousness out of the gospel. It takes the seriousness out of the Bible. And for me, the salvation that I received was knowing that God would, as Philippians 2 said, would come condescend to earth and to live as a man. Amen. And also we have to think about, uh, in regards to the gospel, if Jesus is the Father, then the Father also suffered on the cross. And we find nowhere in Scripture that even speaks that God doesn't experience suffering. The Father doesn't experience, the Father doesn't have a body. The Father is spirit, right? God the Father is not God the Son. The only person in the Trinity that took on human flesh was the Son. So therefore, the Son is the only one who can experience the cross. And so you lose the gospel when you have a oneness theology. So the Father never bled. Exactly. He can't bleed. Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthan. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who is he crying to? That, that whole scene that, that, that we see is destroyed. If we're wondering, well, is he talking to himself? Is it just a manifestation? Is that a hat he's wearing? No, I'm going to read it as clearly as it is written in the Bible that he is appealing to God and saying, why have you forsaken me? I mean, if you think about it, this is a much bigger problem than maybe all of us here in the room even realize. If you have a different Jesus, you have a different gospel, and you have a gospel that can't save, that could never save and could never have the ability to save. And there's only one gospel. There's not many gospels, if you will. Any other gospel is really a wrong gospel. And the Apostle Paul uh, told us in Galatians chapter 1, And verse 8, that, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And listen, maybe you're a oneness Pentecostal and you're hearing this, and maybe you're getting upset, or maybe your eyes are being opened, and if they are, praise the Lord for that. But realize this, if you have another Jesus, then you have another gospel, and that gospel can never save. How does that apply to the normal everyday Christian, right, who's not a theologian? Well, here's how it could apply. Are you a member of a church where one is Pentecostals come in and sing? Do you have enough information and theology and biblical knowledge to look at the Bible 
and then question these people and say, excuse me, what do you believe about the Trinity? Do you have enough biblical knowledge to even approach your leadership and say, listen, I have some concerns about some of these people that are coming into our church and ministering to us who don't believe in the same Jesus that we believe in. And this is something that's very important. Would we want Jehovah Witnesses coming in our church because they're good gospel singers? Absolutely not. And so here is where the rubber meets the road for a lot of Christians. Very true. Very true. Because again, if you have a gospel that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you have another Jesus, that Jesus can't save. And that gospel cannot save. And so therefore, yes, you might have friends, as I do, who are one as Pentecostals. Uh, they can be very nice people. It's not, it's not that these people are like, you know, your enemies that, that you want to see their demise. No, like any person under any belief system that is not centered on the gospel. What do we want to see more than anything? We want to see them come to Christ. And people say, I love Phillips, Craig and Dean. I love their music, but do you really love them as people? Are you concerned about their soul? Because if they die believing what they're believing now, they are going to go to hell. So you're listening to their music while you're worshiping Jesus, yet the music that they're singing to you is about a different Jesus of a oneness theology that does not line up with the Christ of scriptures. So we should be concerned about these people who are coming before us and singing to us. Do they know Christ? Are they going to heaven? Sure. And so when we say that we love God, we want to love the God of Scripture, not just any God of, of our imagination, not any God out there on the landscape of gods like the, the Romans believed in, many gods. We want to love the one true living and triune God that is spoke about in Scripture. And so in order to do that, we must look to his word. And when we look to his word, like a diamond can cut a diamond, we must let Scripture interpret Scripture, and we must allow the Scripture to speak for itself. God will use His Word and illumine it to us so that we would know the one true and living God, and not the God that many television preachers are preaching about. So, Phil, do you have any books or, Glenn, anything you can recommend for our audience to read and learn more about oneness theology? Well, absolutely. Uh, a definitive look at oneness theology by Edward Delcor. Absolutely. I will also like to suggest that you get to know what you believe very, very well. And you can do this simply by studying your friendly neighborhood 1689 Confession of Faith. I like that. And Glenn would say... And I would also suggest reading the Bible from cover to cover, specifically John, 1 John, 2 John, and kind of see what he says about God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to Stop and Think About It. If you would like to contact us, please email us at stopandthinkcrew at gmail.com. You can also visit our website at www.stopandthinkpodcast.com. This podcast is listener-supported by generous people like you. You can give a tax-deductible donation at our affiliate ministry at www.soulfishyministries.org and click on our donate link to give securely through PayPal. Thank you for listening to Stop and Think About It.